This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program for the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. Want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. My name is Nicholas Meyer, director of Star Trek 2 and 6, and you are listening to Standard Orbit on Trek FM. Risk is our business. It's like nothing we've dealt with before. By golly, Jim, I'm beginning to think I can cure a rainy day. I can't change the laws of physics. Now in standard orbit, sir. Welcome, everyone, to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated podcast that covers the original and new cast of Captain Kirk and the Enterprise. I am Ken Tripp. I am Zach Moore. And I'm Haley Stoddart. Today we are taking a look at one of the magazines that I was gifted over Christmas from my cousin. Uh, This topic of this particular issue is Ken's favorite film and version of our beloved ship, the motion picture and the refit Enterprise. So I posited to you guys a list of topics from some of those magazines and Ken was like, refit! Hands down. <laughs> yeah, I was like a little kid. Um, thank you, Haley, for putting all this together. And um, and, and Zach, he kind of rogered up pretty quick, too, about yep. the, uh, the topic. So we've done a few different shows on Standard Orbit about the movie. We've done a show about starships holistically. Actually, our biggest downloaded episode ever was Red Shirt Starship. And then we've um, I've talked to Paul Olson, who uh, actually was the painter of the the model of the enterprise for tmp so we've we've kind of talked all around it but i don't think we've ever specifically had a show about the ship what's changed what did they do how did they come up with the idea so when you put that together Haley, yeah i was real excited in fact i almost skipped over your introductions just to start getting into the meat of this thing because i'm i'm like i'm i'm really pumped but love love this ship um what were your thoughts zach when we started this thing yeah, well, first of all, Haley, that's an awesome Christmas present you got. I remember back in the day, I used to get Star Trek in the magazine. I actually have most of them, I think, in storage. Uh, I will pull them out one day. Uh, <laughs> it's a it's a climate-controlled storage, guys, so don't worry. They're in good condition. But, uh, th- yeah, that was a really cool magazine. It was kind of like the Internet before the Internet. I mean, think about it. This is the early 2000s. People still have dial-up. You know, you don't have things like memory alpha or all you know all this all these resources and articles and interviews and pictures and all that so uh, star trek the magazine was really slick really well put together too it's like it's like bigger than a normal magazine so it's kind of hard to fit on shelves <laughs> but it's like glossy so it's, it's like really high production value so it was a really great thing they were putting out back in the day and uh, and i love the refit enterprise it's my favorite enterprise my favorite spaceship so i uh, i'm looking forward to talking about it here today and I'm interested, Haley, from from your opinion. If funny thing was when we were doing Red Ship Star Red Shirt Starship, and 
it may have had the longest feed on the Babel conference at the time. There's probably been some that usurped it, but it went on for days and days. And it was very interesting to me that when we were asking the questions, you know, men in particular had a lot of very strong opinions on their ships and whatnot. And women had a very different view of how they looked at the starships. And, and, and I still remember as Amy in particular, you know, it was more along functionality and comfort, not so much design and things. What, what just out of curiosity, where do you kind of land when you look at the different enterprises? And is, does the ship really mean a lot to you or not? I, I mean, I know your Twitter handle would indicate that it does, but I'm just curious. Uh, you know, I'm I'm middle ground on this. I I like how it looks. I like the design, the overall design. But I think to some degree, it's also the interior too. So it's not just those beautiful exterior shots that really pull me in, but some of those interior shots and and exactly how it functions, how it works and stuff. I'm very logical, rational. But I also like the leak of them. I really do. Um, ship wise. I think they're really important. I mean, it is a character in itself. And and it makes me sad. I mean, I yes, I didn't grow up with the original series and it's my second favorite, but I cry every time like something happens to the ship and it's like getting destroyed, you know, in the Kelvin films. I'm like, oh, this is really sad. Like <laughs> and beyond well, the, when it got oh my gosh, that that sequence with Beyond and those hive ships, I just oh, that just broke my heart. That was sad. <laughs> Everybody, everybody just needs to calm down. There are plenty of letters left in the alphabet. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, there are for sure. So um, I'm sure there's a lot of people, a lot of our listeners who who know a lot of the details of the differences. And the sh- um, how much of this in reading over kind of what I typed up, Ken, did you know? You know, the refit is of, your favorite. Yeah. Well, at the time, Haley, back in 79, um, before some of my friends here on this, this show ever existed, I had these incredible blueprints. and Oh, the blueprint story, yes. The blueprint story. And, and one of the things that, that I regret more than anything in certain spe- aspects is, you know, when I was a kid, we didn't collect, we played with things, and we showed off things, and we brought it to school with us. And, you know, things get stained, destroyed over time. You know, it, that's just how, how things were. It's amazing to me how how people are so meticulous today when they get these things, uh, how well they take care of it. I was not one of those people. But I studied this ship like you wouldn't believe uh, because, you know, the movie really was as much about the Enterprise as anything else, right? And that's probably why a lot of people didn't like it as much as others because it didn't focus as much on the characters. It was a lot about the ship and its functionality and everything just seemed to have a purpose and a point. And all of that got lost in the ensuing movies and, and series and so forth where... It, it wasn't as regimented as it was on the motion picture. So for me, I really got into it. Now, when you put all the discussion notes together and I started looking at it again, it brought back a lot of memories because I had forgotten, you know, how much it increased in size or why they did this or why they did that. I just, um, I just remember studying and understanding what was on each deck, what each person's mission was performing on the bridge all of that stuff as a kid i was really into so um and and just the the ultimate designed i i thought it was just um the, the way that they painted the ship the way they they had the look of the ship it never looked better and it's never looked better since the motion picture it just hasn't they have not matched the level of scale um and the beauty 
uh, of, of capturing that model. Even with the new CGI, they have not been able to create another ship. I don't care which one. Um, doesn't matter if it's an Enterprise or an alien ship or whatever. They've never been able to match that quality and that beauty of that ship. What are your thoughts, Zach? Yeah, like I had no idea what deck the engineering was on on the Enterprise. I mean, I, TNG, I knew it was Deck 36, if they say that a lot, but I actually never had remembered or recalled or looked up that it was on Deck 19, apparently, on the on the original series, Enterprise, movie Enterprise. So stuff like that's interesting. And, and the thing about the, uh, you know, different things like where the name and then registry number are and, and th- those kind of things, I never really looked at, like, A to B comparison of what had changed between the, the refit and the, uh, and the original. It's almost a totally new Enterprise, right? <laughs> so it really is. Yeah, so um, I, you know, I was flipping through the, the magazine, and there was a short little section of some uh, some of the changes, and then there was a, a longer article that I read, um, and it was really interesting to find out. I mean, it does it increases from two hundred and eighty nine meters to three hundred and five. Like, that's a sizable difference, right? <laughs> um, yeah. You know, it's uh, new hull plating. Obviously, I mean, the nacelles are quite different. Um, yeah, I think that the nacelles are what makes it a bit longer. Uh, mm-hmm. It makes because they're at a more angle, it kind of goes back a little further. Um, yeah. Plus, plus, I don't know, the saucer might be bigger. I'm not, sh- I'm not sure if that's in here or not, but, uh, but little. I mean, that's what. What is that like? That's let's do some quick math here. Eleven. Plus five is six, so sixteen meters longer <laughs> than the original Enterprise. Six. That's you know when you're, when you're talking big ships, sixteen meters is nothing. Am I right? It's not that significant. It's not, mm-hmm. but it's you know I always multiply by three. I know a meter is a little bit more than a yard, um, and that's you know when I think in terms of ships, I always think in terms of feet because that's what I'm used to. And so I mean the ship is, is roughly it's it's roughly a thousand feet long, which you know in today's world is a little shorter than an aircraft carrier, but it's a pretty good sized ship, right? Yeah. Well, and I liked the fact that uh, they added a recreation deck. <laughs> yeah, you didn't like you didn't like the rec rooms, <laughs> the windowless, uh, uh, the glorified briefing rooms we had yep. in the original series. That wasn't good enough for you. <laughs> no, come on now. We need game time, right? I mean, we were talking off mic about playing board games and stuff. This... I mean, the crew needs that. This device serves no purpose, Haley. Okay, like, I don't. Uh, I really no. I really I like the rec deck. It's like w- probably the coolest set on the motion picture. Most impressive, I think. Yeah, engineering by far. But <laughs> what I like about the rec deck is, and what its point was in the film was to be able to assemble the entire crew, right? And that's important. Uh, you know, on uh, on ships that are not in space, you can do that on the flight deck or the quarter deck. You can you can get the teams together. You can have ceremonies. You can have all those things. And that was just something that you know on the original Enterprise, and probably even on the D. It's like where would you put all those people to have a formation or you know to recognize or to give someone an award or to you know just to give a brief. Uh, those things happen on ships. Actually, it's quite common. So. For me, I thought that was that was the neatest point, and the fact that it was what three decks high, something like that, because you had you had people up above looking down, and it was it was really cool. It really did a nice job. I mean, it was a beautiful set. Don't get me wrong, Zach. I just thought, for me, the most impressive set that has been ever built 
I think, across Star Trek and has been rebuilt several times was that engineering deck. I mean, that was that was incredible. Even doesn't seem dated to me at all when I see it today. Yeah, yeah. So that, uh, I mean, we've talked a little bit about the nacelles. They're a little different. Uh, the well, do, you, do you guys like the nacelles from the original series or the movies better? What do you guys movies. think? All the movies. movies. Yeah, definitely the movies. I thought it was interesting that when they went to the TNG era, right, they kind of went back to the the cell caps and the of the original series, you know, because we had the I always call them like the stripe nacelles from the movies, you know, the Enterprise, the Reliant, the Excelsior, they have the same look in the cells in the twenty two seventies and eighties, I guess that was in. And then it gets they get retro again in the twenty fourth century and they go back to the uh, the buzzard collectors, right? Did you say buzzard? Buzzard collectors. <laughs> that I that I know for I have the TNG technical manual and those things are called buzzard collectors. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. I, 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 for some reason, I guess in my head, I always I I, 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 I know it's mentioned. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I guess maybe because of um, and I and I do remember in Insurrection they did call it out. I, I just thought it was Bizarre or something like that, but I didn't realize it was buzzard. It's the so Riker maneuver, man. Yeah, I. Uh, yeah, whatever. I, I, there, there's they use that in TNG. <laughs> there's an episode of TNG where they use that once too, and I don't know. I always thought that was kind of weird. I they certainly I, I'm sure that was not their function on the original series. There might be some retcons, right? Some novel somewhere where they use the the cell caps for that purpose. But uh, I think in the original series, it's like let's let's just have something like red, has like a light on it. That looks cool. Put that on there, you know. So I, I doubt they were called buzzer collectors in the TOS era. Probably no not. Yeah. But yeah, I, I like the I like the movie nacelles as well. So well, and they are more angled than they were in the original series. So you were right on that, Zach. Um, and uh, and you're also correct. The saucer section is a little bit wider in the refit. Because they, no, they wanted more internal space. So it is wider. That, to me, I, I'm like outside the universe, fine. I get it, right? But you know, in universe, it's like, all right, how do I justify <laughs> this is the same enterprise? I thought, okay, maybe... They like they keep the saucer section, right? And they eject like the bridge module, and they put a new bridge module on, and they eject the nacelles, and they put some new nacelles on, right? And you're like, okay, then maybe that I can buy that it's the same ship. But when you're talking about like a bigger saucer section, like what do they do? Like, like like it, they built more decks around the sides, you know? Just I'm just trying to, <laughs> I don't know. That's fine. It's just when you try to think about like. I mean, m there's no money in the 25th century, whatever. But how what how cost effective is it to to? It's like, are, are you gonna keep fixing this old car? Or are you gonna just buy a new car at this point? You know, I, that, I don't know. Like stuff like does that 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 really like I had always assumed the saucer was the same size. And then we started talking about like looking at the numbers here you put together and talking about how much bigger the ship is. I'm like, well, I guess that's bigger, and it is. And to me, that's weird that the saucer is bigger. I don't know. Yeah, I I, I think that. Um... It's, it's interesting. Sometimes, uh, you know, you might have a very small portion of the ship that is original, a deck plating area here or there, because they want to keep, the, especially if the ship is historical and they don't want to tear it up. But essentially, you know, you can gut, replace, rebuild almost from scratch, you know, a, a, a ship. And so when they say it's almost an entirely new enterprise, it's like, I can't, I can't see what isn't new at all. Um, so it could be something very internal and something very small, you know, in order to say, yep, this is still, there's still a part of this ship that's still here, you know. And there's a lot of, if you go to like the USS New York, 
is actually built um, from the steel from the World Trade Centers. You know, they did that as a as a way to memorialize, you know, those buildings and things. So you you can take pieces and parts and so forth and kind of keep things intact so that you can have this um, this legacy. You know, so the enterprise is still the enterprise. So when people come aboard, it's like, you know, they even though it's a very small percentage, they can say this was the famous ship that did the first five year mission, all this other stuff. And, you know, it's it's completely modernized. So I, I do hear what you're saying. I think that that's probably where they were going. If not, that's definitely what's in my head, because you're right. It doesn't make much sense. The ship in the motion picture captures a lot of details that no one even really bothered to try to go after in the original series. I mean, they really didn't, you know, um, you know how things work. Uh, you know, you never really see where the torpedoes come out of, where the phasers come out of, all that other stuff in the TV show. And all of this is very clear, you know, in the um, in the movie. So I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, I, I, I think that expanding and, and lengthening, you know, they, they do do that when they do refits on ships today. But I would say, you know, they don't change 99% of the ship, um, which is what they definitely did in the motion picture. Well, and, and we'll get to that in a little bit because there was an article um, about the redesigning of it, and I found it really, really interesting. So we'll kind of hint to some of why it changed so much. Um, uh -huh. So stay tuned for that. But um, so I think the coolest thing for me about we'll talk about the bridge and then we'll get to your favorite section, Ken. We'll talk about main engineering. Uh there were turbo lock armrests on the bridge now. <laughs> <laughs> no one's going flying, huh? <laughs> nope, no one's gonna go flying anymore. Um, you can engage those turbo lock armrests if turbo you need to. Turbo lock armrests. So that's yeah. like a is that a technical term? <laughs> that's what it said in the magazine. It said turbo lock armrests. So like when the ship's at warp. And mm -hmm. I guess if it's going too fast or something happens, you're not. It's like a yeah. seatbelt, but it's on your arm. If you get if you get sucked into a wormhole because your warp drive is not working right, you just put on your turbo lock armrests and you're good. So yep. No, I no, like that it. is a cool design because everybody's like, why are there seatbelts on the Enterprise? It's like, well, here, here's an answer to all your criticisms, people, and that's genius because you're not gonna like strap in. This isn't NASA, you know. But I mean, I think you know that that's a really cool idea to have them like kind of fit over your thighs and you're you're kind of locked in the turbo locked into your chair. So that that, that is a really cool design which they lost when they got to the um, Marriott in space, the Enterprise D. They just everybody's just hanging out in their chairs, flying around, all that kind of thing. But uh, the turbo lock armrest, that definitely, that, that's a great, there you go. That's the, Haley, Haley's doing the, uh, the Star Trek uh, uh, stagger and shake. Um, but th yeah, that, that is a really uh, smart design there for the bridge. And also the two turbo lifts, huh? Yep. Yeah, exactly. I know. Well, and I who's been holding I, up the damn elevator? Right? There's only, <laughs> there's only. I can't believe there's only one access point right to your command center. Like if that's compromised, and you're kind of screwed. So uh, it makes perfect sense there to be more than one turbo lift. And that was even from the animated series. You know, they had two turbo lifts on the animated series. I think it's in a different spot. But that's that the the whole the whole place of the animated series and the continuity here has always been kind of in question. I count it as canon, so I, I have my own fanboy justifications for how that works. But regardless, more than one turbo lift, definitely the way they go to the bridge. Yeah, I agree with you there. I think that makes way more sense than than just the one. So yeah, that one was kind of nice too. Anything catch your eye, Ken? 
Well, I'm, I was thinking of now I'm going to call my seatbelts turbo lock seatbelts. <laughs> I, I just like that term. I think that's, that's pretty cool. I, I don't remember that term until seeing it here bulleted out that that's what they called it. But that's, that's pretty cool. Uh, well, the, the whole bridge itself is, is much more sensible and practical than it mm. had ever been. Like I said, each station had a, had a real function. And they really got into the Natsass detail on that. You know, I mean, they had, you know, a weapons and security station makes perfect sense. The comm station, the science station, the environmental controls, engineering, navigation, and helm. You know, all of it had just, just a perfect reason and design like you would have not so much on the bridge of a ship, but you would have in a combat information center. You know, you'd have all those different sections around. And it's it's funny because that original bridge design from the Enterprise has been copied so often as because of its practicality, right? Where where things work, how things should operate. It, it really was a beautiful, masterful design as to how you would probably have a... Uh, you know, a bridge or a, you know, a CIC or, or whatever in space. It, it really did. And I just thought the motion picture, you know, took it to a whole new level. It's, it's funny when you see movies like Star Wars and other things where, you know, you're on the Star Destroyer and you're like, How, well, who's, who does what? You know, I mean, and it's huge. It's absolutely massive. And as you watch Star Trek kind of evolve, the the um, the design of the Enterprise Bridge, whether original series or in the TOS movies or whatever, uh, probably doesn't really come back into play as much until you get onto the Defiant, where it's really practical. You know, you don't want to be shouting orders across a big expanse. Uh, you you want to make sure everybody can clearly hear what's being said to one station to the other, and it needs to be kind of compact. Uh, and you certain as you know, like having people behind you. Um, in critical stations like weapons and things like that, it, it doesn't it doesn't work very well. Yeah. Uh, it it, it Fire. just doesn't. What? Yeah, yeah. Fire. yeah, yeah. You you want to be sure things will work, or at least you can you can spin your chair and you can face those folks. So if you think about it, uh, they just took what I thought was a really cool design, upgraded it nicely. But they the focus on the detail of these such things, I mean, I really enjoy. But it does take, I mean, it's almost like, well, you focus so much on this. What about the actual plot and storyline and, and other things and characters? And that's what kind of, you know, what I loved about the movie is a lot of things that people didn't like. It's like, well, that, that's not really all that important. What's important is this or the plot or this or that. And I thought they captured it all very well in the movie. But I do understand a lot of people are like, man, this was, this was incredible. It's, it's like this thing is completely real. Uh, and I think that helped me suspend disbelief even more because the more practical it is and the more I can envision something working the more I can escape into that reality yeah and I think it was great because the bridge became the functionality of it became better right um I mean you've got weapons control is separate from helm now rather than both uh which yeah, exactly. It's, you know, and that's very practical and, and makes sense. Um, I will say uh, some people were not standing, were standing. They did not have chairs to spin around in, but <laughs> they lost their chairs. <laughs> yeah, like the guy um, the guy with the glowing eyes who was like, what, my Captain Decker? Blah, blah, blah. Like, he doesn't have a chair. He's just standing around most of the time. Like, you see the ship shaking. He like, has to hold on to, like, the wall. <laughs> it's like, oh, that poor guy. But, hey, Worf didn't get a chair for seven years on Next Generation. So, <laughs> the senior officer. It's got a whole, they finally gave a chair in Generations. Somebody really 
didn't get a chance to see it very much, but he does have a chair back there. But. Yeah. Decker had nothing either, right? Because he was <laughs> just wandering around from station to station. <laughs> yeah, he literally was. I mean, he was just, just, just standing back there because of the, the way, you know, that, that wasn't what it was designed to be. Well, he's supposed to have the captain's happened. chair. That's right. Kicks him out. He's spo- then he's like science officer, like, okay. And then Spock shows up. He's like, well, all right, I guess I'm going to get up from here. Yeah. <laughs> and then, <laughs> then he's just wandering around the rest of the time. I, didn't think I, about I that. know. If it was if it went to four hours, I wonder how many other jobs he would have been relieved from. <laughs> It is kind of, kind of fun. Yeah, kind of a rough day. Um, this is my this is my favorite bridge, I think, and I like that little. Uh, does anybody know what the green dome is at the top uh, of the of this bridge? You know, like the little half circle, half sphere, I should say. Uh, and now in the animated series, uh, it's interesting. It was some kind of bridge self defense. That's what it reminded me of. And I think yeah. I believe it's in Beyond the Farthest Star, the first episode of the animated series. That they have like a bridge self defense thing. And like a little like phasers come down, which is brilliant, I think. You know, if you're trying to protect your command center from hostiles taking over, uh, but that—that's what I always kind of thought it was. Uh, I think that's kind of cool. Now, I, I mean, I, I don't, I, I don't know what uh, the original Enterprise was supposed to have up there. Like, you know, like the D has its little window, which is cool. But well, the never... original Enterprise had a window too because they. Well, would... that's right. <laughs> the zoom in, yeah, the, the classic zoom in, yes. zoom in from the cage established right. in the very first episode. Very good. Uh, right. Now we we got to see that from the outside. We never never had the budget to point up at the ceiling on the original series set. I mean, because they never built one. But uh, but yeah, I, I forgot about that. So anyway, I don't know what that little green orb is. I don't think it, I don't think it's ever been itemized or anything. But I think it's pretty cool. And this is and I and I like the subdued colors of the bridge, right? Because even the original series, I like the cage version of the bridge better because it's not mm-hmm. like an eyesore. Like, oh my god, turn that bridge down, right? There's there's so many <laughs> colors, you know. <laughs> and uh, a product of the time, selling RCA televisions. Yeah, 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 we get it. But I think it's 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 a nice kind of subdued work environment where you don't have to like, oh, God, the red is like too much on my eyes. So I, I like in this bridge, you know, is, is they continue it through two and three and then four. They kind of repaint it and then they completely redesign it for five and six. <laughs> but those are conversations for other times. But even of the movie bridges, you know, of the design exterior, Right of the of the ship, I like the NCC seventeen oh one refit and the A and the interior. I like you know the motion picture two and three bridge. So those are those are my preferences when it comes to the bridge. Yeah, there definitely is less red. Uh, the railings became chrome instead of the red. So which I've never really noticed. And now that I think about it, you're like, yeah, they they were red in the motion in the movie in the TV series, and then they're not anymore. So. Uh- it's much more nautical now, you know, than it, than it ever was, and makes a lot of sense. And that's that's how things work normally, you know. I mean, things are, are much more subdued. Um, a lot of it's for practicality and, and easy to paint. Back, you know, in our timeline, in their time, I'm not really so sure, but uh, you know, it just it just has it has a has a really sleek, very functional, practical look to it, and uh, makes a lot of sense. And that that was the the whole logic, I guess, of it was, you know, how do we make this look so believable and practical that you know uh it makes a lot of sense to people and i think they did a good job with it now now making our way down to main engineering i did want to mention that they change where the phasers and photon torpedoes are right from the original series and this this is one of my favorite changes as well because you have the original series i get that the phasers are coming out of that talk about talk about domes right at the bottom right. the top of the saucer i get that the phaser emitter is like the dome at the bottom of the, the original enterprise i get that right and then it's like Fire torpedoes and like torpedoes also kind of come out of there. <laughs> Apparently, that's I, I'm right. Not, 
I'm not. I'm kind of. That was always kind of confusing to me. I, I think it maybe remastered. They play with that a little bit to kind of make it make a little more sense. DOS remastered, but I like the differentiation now because you know actually, the only original series movie where the Enterprise fires phasers is Star Trek Two, and you see the little like you know phaser emitters on the, on the saucer section. That's cool. But the torpedoes now have moved down to like be the bridge on the neck between the saucer and the and the star drive section. And I like that a lot because you think about, you know, everybody knows the classic shots in the Meyer movies where people like they're pulling up grates and loading torpedoes and that kind of thing. That makes sense to me that like the torpedo like, you know, assembly system will be down there in the star drive section and then like in the in the long shoot through the through the battle bridge or battle bridge, battle set, whatever they call they never really established what it was called, right? So I just go to my TNG terminology for that. But you just see, you know, I can I can just visualize even like in a blueprint, like okay, here's the torpedo launcher, here's the stuff, right? And to me, that makes a lot of sense, and I'll, and it just perfectly like it's a great kind of a joint between the two parts of the ship to have the torpedo launcher there. So I, I really like that uh, change for this refit Enterprise. Mm-hmm. Yep, I think that that made a lot of sense, and on the blueprints too, it did allow it to um, to fire aft torpedoes. And so there's no obstruction there. Now, you don't really see a hole. You don't see anything where that, that could happen. But I just remember that being part of the blueprints. Now, I remember I remember Khan shouting, aft torpedoes fire at some point. So we know the Reliant could do that, too. <laughs> yeah, they, they, do sh- they do shoot. So they had that, um, that really cool you know, spoiler. spoiler. Yeah, the spoiler, <laughs> where they had the, the same torpedo deck as the Enterprise just, just above everything, which I thought was pretty neat. But you could see where... You know, now you could you, you could understand how they shoot out of the stern, and and you know, and credit to um, the next generation. You know, they have that long tube that goes across the top of the secondary hull. I'm sorry, the primary hull, where it also can can fire. You know, as we saw in the very first episode, um, tor- torpedoes from a stern. So it's it's pretty cool. Yeah. All right, Ken. We have reached engineering. Engineering. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. You know, they, they put so much effort and so much money into this deck. I, I mean, it is so big. You know, it's four or five decks up and down. And when you look down, when, when Kirk looks down into the main antimatter chamber, how many decks that goes, that, that's incredible. And that flow of energy between the two. And then when they added the scale where you actually see the matter, antimatter, I, I'm not sure what exactly is going, but that energy that goes down the tube to the two nacelles. They hired actors at different heights, including children, so that the scale looked like it was going a really long way down the um, the back of the, the primary hull up into uh, the two engines. And so, you know, it was really hard in the original series to kind of understand the under- engineering section and how it worked because all the tubings, pipes, everything was in a triangle, right? And, and, it, would, and it would go down in a ti- triangle, so it was really hard to see how things worked. But um, in this case, uh, I thought they did a really nice job of, um, you know, uh, bringing scale and, um, you know, modern technology into the play. I, I just haven't seen a set that, that has come close to matching what they did in the motion picture. Of course, no one's had the money or the budget until 2009 to do anything like that either. You don't prefer the Anheuser-Busch factory to this, kid? I don't like the Anheuser-Busch factory very much. <laughs> Um, and I really, I, I would have to say that it was probably the biggest disappointment when The Next Generation aired. And, you know, I was like, really? Neon light? You know, as I, you know, we, we went from really cool engine. It's almost like we went backwards. I, I just, 
I, I wasn't impressed uh, at all with what they did with engineering. Uh, but, you know, I thought the motion picture, they did it right. Well, I, I, to, to your point there, I think, and I, I might be wrong about this, but I really think they just literally took the prop from motion picture and the whatever special effects light they had inside and used it for Voyager. Because as soon as Voyager started, I was like, that is the engineering from the motion picture. You know, the, like the, the cloud-looking blue and purple waves and all that. Anyway, that, I, th- they were using so many props, like movies and TV shows back and forth in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Like, they probably did. But anyway, to, 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 speaking of the engineering set itself, I really like the horizontal branch-offs of the, the warp core. Because that, that makes sense. Like, where is this energy going? Right? It's going off to the sides to the nacelles. So that was really cool. And then, obviously talking about the practicality of the environmental suits that everybody wore as well in engineering it made you feel like this is, a, this is a working place you know and it could be dangerous so we need to protect ourselves so yeah i i love this engineering set yeah it's it's beautiful um i appreciate that you know they they put in some elevators and they put in more ladders which i mean that makes sense come on now <laughs> if you have this large set how are you gonna get around ain't nobody gonna run upstairs it's gonna take too long <laughs> Um, yeah, and, and when they and when they shot it all out in Star Trek Two, you know, and how it kind of followed the trail as to, you know, where those um, those main energy conduits existed, you know, they they did it well there too. So uh, they they didn't take the time or effort in Star Trek Two to give it the scale that it had in Star Trek the Motion Picture. Uh, but they used the exact same sets, uh, and 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 it worked out okay. You know, it worked out okay. And I think ultimately, you know, the changes interior wise you know for the enterprise original and refit i mean you could it's it just giving us we have a budget now we have we're, we're the whole movie is set on the enterprise so we can explore this we can extrapolate things that we did never got a chance to see before you know i mean engineering from the original series looked different like all the time you know when we first got there it was pretty empty some episodes that has all these giant things that like you know like enemy within like evil kirk's crawling on top of like what is this what where where are we what's going on um Space Seed, you got these random pipes that you can pull out and beat up people when they take over engineering, you know. Uh, yep. And then, like, in the third season, Scotty got, like, his sec- or second or third season, I forget, but Scotty got, the, like, a second-level area. Uh, so it was just, it was always evolving, you know. And so it was nice, it's like a fully formed, like, here's the way we would wish we could have presented it from day one to y'all. I mean, and even, and, and even look at, like, Next Gen, right, when they had, like, uh, stellar cartography, right? I think I believe in lessons, right? Yes. The episode with uh, Nella yep. Darren, she's a stellar cartographer, right? It's like it's like a room with like a like a an island in the center of it, you know, and that's it. And then you go to generations, like okay, we have some money now, let's build this awesome mag- uh, magneto uh, cerebro <laughs> stellar cartography set, right? And and that's great. And then of course you get to Nemesis, and they go back to just using a room, but that's a conversation for another time. But anyway, I just loved how expansive it was, and that's something that. You know, I, I love a lot of the interiors on the Kelvin timeline uh, Enterprise. Like, you know, it's like an Into Darkness when Kirk and Spock are walking along. You see, like, corridors and crossways, and they really open everything up. And we just never got to really spend enough time on that Enterprise, I think. And, and that and that, that was what's great about the motion picture. And like you said, Ken, all the things you love so much or maybe what made other people bored, I don't know. But I like that we got to, we got to really know this new enterprise, which I think was appropriate because we had known the original enterprise for, for, you know, three years on TV inside and out. And they're bringing us this new ship, which looks, it's kind of like the other one, but it's, it's really different. So taking the time to like kind of reintroduce you to everything and familiarize you with everything and show off everything was really great and helped you, you know, as you guys were saying, kind of buy into the events of the actual story because you buy into the environment. 
Yeah. So, uh, so Roddenberry, he actually was considering redesigning the ship anyway because he was in this. He at this point, it's phase two. Yeah, the, the old sets were destroyed, so you might as well start over. Right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. Uh, so he, you know, he brings in Matt Jeffries, who um, kind of helped start this process along, and he actually worked on the original um, construction and design of the ship. Uh, in the article, he said that he actually had the f- the nacelles f- were flat uh, when he first drew them, so that kind of was where he was starting from with this redesign. Um, but then phase two evolved into the movie and paramount brought in um robert abel and associates to redesign this and uh they've got uh richard taylor and he was like uh guys we've just so his quote in it is uh he sat down with Roddenberry and uh, Katzenberg and said, we are going to have to redesign the Enterprise because it needs to be armatured from six sides and it needs to have lighting systems in it. Also, if the camera is going to get close to the model, say up close to the windows, the model has to be big enough for us to give it detail. Trying to film a model that is too small is deadly. The focus, lighting, depth of field, surface textures, and much more come into play. The Enterprise ended up being almost eight feet long and the model that was under construction was maybe four feet long so i mean they doubled the model (laughs) in size (laughs) well i think one of the other changes they made in between was when uh matt jeffries was still doing any i I actually have i went at starship las vegas a couple years ago i got like a mini poster of this uh as like the very first poster for the motion picture it's kind of a hybrid between the movie and the show enterprise yes so it has like the it's the, a cool the, poster. Yeah, yeah it, right, isn't it, right? So it, it, has, is, like, yeah. it has the moving nacelles, but it kind of has the original series deflector dish. Uh, and so I kind of like it. Actually, I think Eagle Moss came out with a a uh, version of that, like a small model. Like, you know how they're, they're, they're running out of ships. Potentially. Do, right? so they're like, Potentially. They're like, oh, I mean, they've got Let's everything. ships that never happen that people know about. <laughs> you know, so I think they came out with that. If they really do have every Brandon would know. Brandon collects, like, every single one of those. Brandon Shamatella. So uh, what, do you, what do you guys think about the uh, – that the deflector dish I, that's something i wanted to ask y'all do you like the the radio deflector dish of the original series or do you like the uh you know blue or gold one from the refit oh Go ahead, yeah Go ahead. um yeah i like the original series the the tv version of it you do huh yeah uh, the, um yeah I, I well you know to me um uh, you know the the newer version had a much more I guess modern feel. The the satellite dish to me was always very old technology, and I was like, boy, they, you know they they didn't they didn't modernize that piece of it, but it was at least it was a familiar piece of technology. You know you could understand what it was doing, uh, even though it, you know I I always thought you know as a kid it was a receiver or you know an antenna where mm-hmm. instead of a deflector. So I I, I guess that. Um, the new approach with, you know, that energy. Of course, you know, that deflector dish then became useful uh, in the various TV shows as time went on and even uh, generations, which we'll forget ever existed. But, um, you know, where they, they <laughs> use the deflector dish to do different things, uh, you know, it, it became, you know, it had more than just the ability to, to move objects away from the, uh, the ship as it was traveling, that type of thing. So for me, I, I thought it... Um, it, it added to the symmetry of the ship. I, I think that's the one thing about the motion picture Starship. Now, there is absolutely 
very little reason to make it more aerodynamic, but it's much more aerodynamic, right? And <laughs> yeah. if you're if you have um, an antenna or something like that that would that would actually you know stick out from the front like they did in the original series or whatnot, then in theory you know that would put up against a lot of resistance. Where now, like there's no air, there's nothing to push against. But at least uh, it it just kind of keeps with the symmetry of the ship with everything being tight and and kind of locked in. And you know again it just it just seems to work for me. Well, when you take the Enterprise, you know underwater, can I think it helps not to have that dish sticking out in front. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it get, you know, yeah. L- less um, less barnacles and things to scrape off it. <laughs> no, you know, and I think we, I, I might have been red shirt Starship when we talked about it, Ken, but I think you actually told me about how, because uh, I was like, hey, it's blue, it's gold sometimes, what's the deal? And I think you, you're you the one who told me, like, well, when the warp core is working correctly, it's blue, but when it's not, it's gold or something like that. And so, again, like the, the practicality of using, you know, uh, the design and stuff to, like, signify something that's working or or whatnot with the ship because in motion picture it's gold most of the time and then all the rest of the movies and at the end of motion picture it's it's blue I'm talking about the deflector dish on the on the refit so anyway there you go deflector dish blah 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 but you know something else i, I thought was interesting Haley, which which you uh which you mentioned from the article here was how they they tried to make it like kind of more of an art deco design huh yeah <laughs> which i think you can see it um i like how uh taylor said that uh the front end of the nacelles is almost like a 1940s uh, Ford grill and I'd have to look up a picture to see what that <laughs> to see what a we'll, 1940 we'll Ford grill for looks that. like yeah. we'll take his word on that I guess Tom, Tom Paris would know because he knows all about 20th century vehicles <laughs> um, yeah but you know you're mentioning about the color of um, the deflector dish right so they actually the painting process on the model that they used and I wonder if this is part of it it was textured so that in different lighting, the ship looked um, a little different color. So I wonder if maybe that has something to do with it too, with the deflector dish looking different color, maybe part of yeah. the painting process. If you if you oh. get Paul Olson's book or you you listen to um, the episode, and Zach will tell you the episode number because he's got them all by heart. This guy. <laughs> <laughs> but I know it was it was January, I think last year, so it was just a year ago. When I interviewed Paul, or maybe it's two years ago, time goes by. But um, great, you know, the, the the original team that put together the Enterprise and painted it and all of that are actually having this big, you know, fundraiser um, where they they want to rebuild the Enterprise from scratch um, and make it much bigger, and they want to paint it the same way. But they use kind of this pearl color, and they 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 literally painted like every single deck plate, you know, uh, meticulously. So you're absolutely right, Haley. When, when, when the ship was, um, you know, going through something or passing something, it was it was reflective of those colors. That's why the 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 beauty of the ship was never captured that way again. And it was also because of the way they filmed it. They filmed it using a black screen, not a green screen. And using the black screen allowed them to capture the different um, colors and 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 so forth. And when they made Star Trek two and three. ILM painted the ship white. They just painted it white because they used a green screen, and so the whole ship would look green if they were to use it with uh, the the way that they filmed. And it absolutely, um, you know, changed that 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 piece of the ship. It became a much more sterile look, and they they never really got it again. I mean, I think if you look at the way the motion picture was filmed, and then you see the same ship in Star Trek Six 
It's like after all those years, um, they went backwards. They really went backwards. The ship did not have, um, you know, quite the look, and, and it wasn't as captivating. And it's funny how, yes, the design was there, the look was there from, you know, n nothing changed on the ship other than they added the, the hyphen and the A. But wow, uh, what a big difference um, all those years of wear and tear put on that ship. And the fact that they, they never went back and attempted to film it the way that it really looked its best. And, and I'm sure that, you know, financially or whatever, it didn't make much sense to do it. But just um, it really, really impacted the look. And that's why the ship never looks the same after Star Trek II, because they use a lot of, obviously, shots from the motion picture in Star Trek II. Hmm. Um, and so you kind of got the, you've got two different enterprises uh, almost. And... Um, it's it's a real shame uh, that they they changed it that much, but that was the kind of time, effort, and money they put into this movie. I mean, to that level of detail, painting each and every section, because they also wanted to show that it had imperfections. You know, that it, things weren't always squared away, and you can always find a small defect here or there and whatever, because that's how ships are. And that's, I mean, to even think of it from that mindset to me is is incredible. Just incredible. And they, they did try to capture that in 09, uh, but that was all computer-generated. You know, the same the same idea. No, I agree. It looked best in the motion picture, you know. I mean, the ship always looks great, but just the, the time and effort and yeah, – they, they, they were rushed. Their budgets kept being slashed, so they were like, okay, let's just, you know, then have the time to go through the meticulous process they did with the first one. And, and it does show – even though they, it does look great in all six movies – it does show there was a clear difference, as you said, Kim, between when you see it in the motion picture and other places. But uh, so while you were talking there, I looked it up because I do not have these things memorized. Um, <laughs> so Paul Olson, he was on Standard Orbit 157. There, there are no is. Star Destroyers in the Smithsonian. That was two years ago. That was January 2017. Two years ago. So time does yeah, fly. Two years. So. Time does fly. That's, you. Uh, you know, one of those reasons uh, – my kiddo and I want to take that trip back east. I told her about the model that's at the Smithsonian, and she just, like, eyes wide, mouth dropped, gasped, like, Mom, we have to go see that. I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Hopefully the shutdown will be over by then. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I wanted to talk to you guys about this, and I found this really interesting. So Taylor um, brought in illustrator Andrew Probert, and he was a Trekkie, so uh, he was working on different areas. Um, he's the reason why the photon torpedo launcher changed, and he worked on the impulse engines. But he did something. He gave the ship landing gear. And this is a quote from the article. Uh, popular opinion indicated that uh, the two triangular points on the underside of the saucer were actually two landing legs. And the third one would be a telescoping leg in the dorsal support cavity. So the saucer would have tricycle landing gear for a planet landing. For the motion pictures enterprise, I designed four landing pads on the underside of the saucer. What do you guys think about the Enterprise landing on a planet. Well, I'd always wondered what those uh, triangular things were at the bottom of the sausage section. I thought they were just like a design thing, you know, but now I can, I, in my mind, I can see him just kind of like lowering down now, <laughs> landing on a planet. <laughs> now, now, the original series Enterprise, you know, that's an emergency only. It might be like, it, it, to me, it works in an emergency only for these kind of big ships. Uh, for something like Voyager, right? It's designed for that smaller ship. It's a, a scout class vessel, I guess, maybe even the Federation terms, Starfleet terms. 
Um, that that's cool that that little ships like that land and take off and all that for Enterprise. I always see it as it's a one-way trip if you're going to land on a planet. But that is cool <laughs> that they kind of thought that through. Because you don't want it just to crash like in Generations. You want it to actually actually have some kind of support. So you can – like an old, like it basically at this point it becomes an old-school flying saucer, right? The saucer section comes down. Ramp comes down. They come down the thing. That, that's how I envision it in my head. So that, that's cool they thought that through. Yeah, he, he um, mentioned in the article that uh, I guess – uh, Kirk had made some reference, said something to Scotty in the Apple um, about landing gear or something, and I'd have to go back and watch. And that's where this idea came from. So I thought that was kind of interesting. And it did mention about the saucer separating, and I was like, "What?" Yeah, yeah, that's something. But they, from, uh, you never see it on film. But they did. No, they, they did yeah. mention that in the <laughs> Apple. It's in Mister Scott's Guide to the Enterprise. It's one of those like. Again, it's kind of it's like a buzzard collector situation, I think, or it's like they, they they come up with something later on, and like it's established in TNG, and they kind of like, oh, we said something kind of like that twenty years ago. Let's let's tie that together, which is cool, I think, when they can kind of tie these these off comments together and make some kind of like uh, the continuity in the design of starships. So that, that's that's pretty cool. Now we actually did get to see the Enterprise separate in Star Trek Continues in its final episode, uh, and I thought, oh, cool. This makes sense. They're going to separate. The Star Drive section is going to get destroyed. That's why the new Enterprise looks totally different. No, they reassembled it. And it just <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. I thought you were going <laughs> to. Now, I, liked, I love Star Trek Continues. Don't get me wrong. I, I've sung its praises many times on the show here, but I thought that was kind of a missed opportunity where they could have really explained why we got almost a totally new Enterprise. But anyway. Yeah, but it also it, it does help explain how you can rebuild and redo the you could you could build an entirely new saucer section and attach it to the primary hull or vice versa so it does allow you to kind of plug and play all the different sections of the ship if you think about its design even from the tv show to now it it has a um it it just whether again by either by accident or by design it's it's perfectly suited to be able to to break up and save whole sections of the ship you know and it can function you know you can you can still maneuver and um you know obviously they they took that to the to a whole new level in the next generation which was was you know its concept its concept was great um in in that sense that you know you could you could send all the um the families and you know the goats and whatever else they have on that ship you know up in the saucer <laughs> section and everything's got to survive and then they can go fight the battles with um you know, with just just the stern section, but you know, they—it's funny—they they never really did that, and I always thought that was kind of interesting, in um, in DS Nine, where all the Galaxy class ships, you know, they all came intact, mm-hmm. uh, you know, into those major battles. So the, the the saucer section did have plenty of weaponry of its own, so to speak. But they kept talking about once removed from its bulk, it is quite a weapon, you know. Yeah, Iron uh, Wharf says that at some point. Yeah, that's right, that's right. <laughs> so I thought that that was kind of neat. But I mean, I think all of that started. Um, you know, with just those comments from the Apple, uh, but the ship itself, I mean, it is, it is very practical and then, you know, and beyond, they also showed you how it's also, it's a strength and a weakness. You know, there's, there's always Mm -hmm. a trade-off. There's always a trade-off. There's actually a diagram in Mr. Scott's Guide to the Enterprise where you see like, you know, it's like, it's like a four point diagram where you see like the saucer separate and then it lands on the planet, you know, and it's like, they should have shown that to them in generations. Maybe they wouldn't have crashed so hard on the planet. I'm just saying, so. Yeah, well, you know, not everybody. I, I have that. I have that book. Yeah, oh, it's a, it, that was that was actually a, a very good book. It came out, I think, 
like around Star Trek two or three timeline or something, right? Uh, Mr. Oh no, the, the original is it Mr. Scott's Guide to the Enterprise? Yeah, it was yeah. the new ship. It was the refit. Okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I do have that. So, uh, have you guys ever noticed uh, Mickey Mouse in the window? No, I I, I saw that. <laughs> They had, but no, they mentioned in this article here that they yeah. put windows on the ship, which is great because I always thought they really added a lot of uh, uh, realism to it. Because you get close enough to the because sh- in the original series you never got close enough for the model to see this, but you get close enough to the refit Enterprise, you can kind of see inside. I'm like, that's really cool. There's like a whole world going on in there. That's really nice. Uh, I didn't realize that there were pictures of, of Mickey Mouse <laughs> in there though. So. Yeah. So uh, when they did that, uh, they put in these um, transparent images inside the windows because when you got up close it would actually look like stuff was going on inside these windows even if it wasn't a particular part of the ship that necessarily we're going to see inside of once you go into an actual set yeah so uh there's mickey mouse um apparently andy probert was in there um and then some others that were involved um uh yeah i'm like i'm gonna look out for mickey mouse and see if i can't find him now (laughs) Well, great. Now, now Disney is going to sue Paramount. Thanks for bringing this to their attention. <laughs> yeah, so that was Disney does not screw around with their copyright. Okay, like I've seen, I've seen daycares that have to like repaint their facades because they painted something that looked too much like Mickey Mouse. So they do not screw around with this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Maybe JJ can smooth that Don't over. Mess with Disney, you know, so because he he works on both sides now, so he can he can smooth that yeah. over. So one yeah, final well, thing. No, they... Yeah. Go ahead. No, go ahead, Ken. <laughs> I was just going to say, now Disney can send out fleets and fleets of Star Destroyers after the poor Enterprise if they have Mickey Mouse in there. That's that's one thing they now have the ability to do. But I I did, you know, one of the things that I thought was really cool in the motion picture is that, um, you know, uh, especially towards the end uh, where they go towards the bottom of the primary hull, you can see the botanical gardens, you know, that they were talking about, right? I mean, you have, there's like a row of four or five big windows that you can Mm -hmm. see in, and... After the motion picture, they just made those big black squares. Like they got rid of those really kind of cool windows that you could you could see into the ship, which I thought was always again another thing where you go, oh okay, you know this is, this will allow them to yeah well, you know I, I know they didn't have the budget, but I I always argue um, you know Star Trek two and Star Trek three, if they didn't put the time and effort to build all the stuff they did in the motion picture, they could never have made those movies because they, no. they said, oh, we did it at, you know, a tenth the cost. I said, yeah, but you did it on sets that were already built for you. So you didn't have the cost involved to create it in the first place. So it's it's not like you weren't just brilliant at being economical. You had stuff that was already bought, paid for, and written off. So you're you're good, you know. So the, the ability to, to do it for a lot cheaper... Um, has been to me, it's like, yeah, you, you can do things a lot cheaper when you have, you know, it's like you can, you, you can, um, you can get somebody else's car and say, you know, I didn't spend as much money as a car as, as you did. It's like, no, you were given it, you know, you, you have it. So have fun with it. You know, all they had to do was paint it and change things the way to, to make the directors feel better or, you know, to have a different look, which they did a nice job with. But, um, yeah, it was just a lot of those cool things where, uh, in the motion picture you don't see again after the motion picture with the ship well and I think you know a lot of us we appreciate those little details and it is those little details that make it wonderful right because you would imagine that yeah I want to be able to see inside the windows it's not just 
I mean, is there a force field that prevents you from looking inside? You can only see when you're looking out the window. I mean, you and so those little details are really what make it, I think. So that's kind of, you know, that's really great that they did that. Um, so one last thing, and I think this is really neat, and I'm wondering if whoever was working on the Kelvin films uh, saw this or heard about this, and this is why we have it. Um, so Taylor, he wanted to have the warp engines uh, generate an obvious energy field. So he designed the nacelles. That's why they have the panels and they light up all the way down. This was abandoned before the film was released, but we do get that in the Kelvin films. So we get that like, uh, he says it, we would have had that streak when the ship was in motion. So what do you guys think? I mean, we see it in the original series and the TV, in the show itself sometimes. And then we see it in the Kelvin film. There's that blue, like, and it makes a noise. The, the well, it probably doesn't yeah. make a noise because there's no sound in space. But, uh, you know, the ship takes off in the Kelvin films and we have that streak behind it. Yeah, like the warp trail. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's some of the, it, yeah, speaking of changes between motion picture and the other ones, like, it, there are some shots even where you can kind of see it kind of look a little blue. And I'm like, oh, is this is this... Like is it supposed to be lit up? Is this a reflection of Viger? What is this? But no, originally they were they were supposed to like it's just a light up. It has some energy to them. So that's another, as you said, they kind of pick it up again in like TNG. We have the, the blue band around the uh, nacelles and that kind of thing. So uh, I don't know. I, I we see so many ships. It's just because it's what I'm used to. We see so many uh, dip, more movies with the Enterprise and other ships like this, but they don't have any kind of like energy coming off them. I kind of I'm kind of used to just being like a dull piece of. <laughs> you know, metal as opposed to something with uh, illumination. Well, I, I thought it was a pretty cool aspect of, of the ship. Um, I don't know if you were talking about in Beyond, Haley, where the, um, you know, you actually see the ship in a warp bubble, right? And everything's moving around it. Uh, and Beyond was the first time they actually kind of, you see graphically how the warp bubble works in the next generation. You, you get an idea of how it's supposed to function. Well, you really saw that for the first time ever in Beyond, right? It was the first time they showed warp speed as envisioned, I think. You know, you have um, you have the different methods. You have, from the, from the original show, the ship just accelerates and the stars move by faster. Uh, in the motion picture, you have this incredible event when it goes into warp speed with, you know, um, it actually, you know, forming that bubble around it with a big explosion, and it's really cool with all the lights and the spectrum coming after you. Then again, they abandoned it in the in the next few movies where it's yeah, just but, a, but you, it's just but you a trail of lights. Into, you can get sucked into a wormhole, Ken. So I mean, I'll, I'll take the more boring uh, approach if we don't have to go into slow motion and use photon <laughs> torpedoes instead of phasers. Uh, you know what? <laughs> you just you know you're you're such a, a Captain Dunsell. You just don't. <laughs> You you don't you don't like any challenges. You just want to make sure when you come to work every day, the coffee's warm and you don't have to worry about anything. Come on, where's your sense of adventure? I mean, it if is. you can't if you can't get thrown up against an asteroid because your <laughs> engines are imbalanced, what the hell kind of life is that? Boring. <laughs> that well, the, channeling the warp drive and the phasers together. Interesting. You know, I think it was only for that one plot point or whatever. But I guess if the, the the biggest power generator on the ship is the warp engine, so if you want more powerful phasers, I guess it makes sense to channel them to the warp engine. So I, I can at least understand why that would be a, a thing. So yeah, I guess what I what I liked about the motion picture when it when it finally went to warp speed, 
and it's it's moving along there is no trail right when it's at warp one through seven it's it's just traveling through space and the stars are, are zipping by right and that that's it's it's right back to where you were in the original series which was pretty cool and they never did that again really um when they went to warp speed there was always a trail behind the ship or whatever in the rest of the movies uh tng kind of met it halfway you know they had kind of this you know the ship becomes elongated rubber band effect yeah rubber band effect right goes into warp but then the stars are lines streaking past, which I always thought was a really cool effect, right? Because you, you, now you know the difference between you, when you're truly traveling at warp and when you're not. And then uh, in the J.J. films, as much as I like those films, they just, you know, okay, whatever the Millennium Falcon did, we do, right? Punch we go it. Into this, you know, we, just, <laughs> we just punch it and we're in this big blue thing or whatever. I don't, I, you know, still doesn't make any sense to me because um, they, they completely lost the point of it. And then... You know, and beyond, I thought they brought it full circle to where it was supposed to graphically kind of look like. So I, I, I love the effect. I thought, um, you know, again, when you when you have that money and that attention to detail, the um, the warp effect, which, you know, think about it. They put that together. They were filming that in 77 and 78. Um, looks better than what they're doing with, with uh, CGI today. I mean, it actually looks better. When that thing goes into warp drive, that is the coolest special effect. I think they've done in any of the Star Trek films, you know, it just, and it adds that level of suspense, you know, because it was such a, up, go to warp speed, no big deal. And in the movie, it became a big deal. Never is again, really. But it was, it was kind of neat. You know, this is like, this is, this is something to really consider here, you know. So he did, he wanted that streak though. And they didn't have it, but he did want it there. And so it's interesting that we get it afterwards in the rest of them and in the Kelvin films. We have that visible blue streak at least in the kelvin films it's that blue sparkly whatever glitter in space <laughs> right right you, you, you have it in the wormhole so to speak but you don't have it beyond that no you're absolutely yeah right. well this has been fun guys i i learned a lot in this and it was really fun and interesting to see the differences between the original series and then the refit uh yeah kind of fun and i'm gonna look out for mickey mouse next time i watch the motion picture <laughs> yes. yeah so is so is, so is iger <laughs> that's right <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it's gonna be interesting because we we know those guys listen to this podcast so mm-hmm. um yeah we might have ratted them out because they probably missed it you know uh, i don't know how old bob iger is he's probably just a little older than me maybe he never read star trek the magazine um and of course uh who was the um when you look, Michael Katzen- Eisner. No, no, no. Um, oh, Katzenberg. Uh, K- yeah, Katzen- Katzenberg worked on this movie. Yeah, right, and became a pretty senior executive at uh, at Disney as well, over time. So he probably you know didn't share that information either, because he would have been in trouble. <laughs> well, R two D two is in uh, the Kelvin timeline. He's in uh, Star Trek 09, you know, floating in like the Vulcan debris. So JJ knew he he knew what he was doing. So. Oh, I thought he got blown out at the beginning when the Kelvin was attacked. No, I think I don't know. Actually, I, I've never actually spotted him myself, so I can't. I, can't I think I did. I think it, I but... went looking for him, I and have I found no idea. him. I was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is funny how they how they do those little things in movies. It's and, and of course they did that on the um, on the displays of of the next gen set all the time, which I thought is is pretty funny when you step away. Yeah. And they talk about what they were, you know, all the inside jokes. It's kind of fun. All right, well, the refit 
of the Enterprise in Star Trek The Motion Picture isn't the only thing we've been talking about this week. Here's a quick look at what else you might have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, to the journey! Brace for impact, yes. <laughs> okay, if, uh, I, I, I'm going to make a commitment to myself right now. If I am ever perishing in a plane crash, I am going to say brace for impact right before I die. To everyone on the plane. I will brace somehow for impact. hear it across the miles. It'll be very dramatic, you know, with some dramatic theme music playing, hopefully, just like we have in Voyager here this episode. Earl Grey. That's terrible. Wow. Like, why would someone think that? I mean, if it's going to infect this entire world of Ferengi, you've got to assume that there's going to be visitors or whatever, and then it's just going to spread yeah, everywhere. Spread that everywhere. doesn't even make sense. Doesn't doesn't sound like a good plan. No, to me. it does not. Literary treks. Both Bound and myself like Star Trek stories that work as uh, some kind of a parable that uh, hold up the mirror to modern times. And when we got the assignment that we could actually write the Prometheus trilogy, we were pretty sure that we wanted to do something contemporary with it, that we wanted to put modern day into a science fiction story. And the biggest problem that we saw at the time was terrorism. Melodic treks. You know, I suppose as being an actor, you know, I just was really kind of feeling into Clive's character and, and trying to express the emotion of what I felt like he was going through on the Sarangi. Mm -hmm. So then it became much more of a personal, individual character. It was how I experienced doing it and that's what else is happening on trek.fm so check out these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the star trek universe and beyond you'll find us wherever you get your podcast if you're an apple user get the show on itunes or the apple podcast app be sure to hit the subscribe button that helps us out greatly and makes it easier for other listeners to find the show if you're not an apple user we've got you covered as well you can find our shows on stitcher TuneIn, speaker soundcloud windows phone and of course you can stream and download the mp3 file from our website and grab the rss link as well if you would like to get in touch with us here at trek fm you can always find us on trek fm slash contact and look in the sidebar on the show page or you can go to speakpipe.com slash trek fm and please leave us a voice message you can also contact us through twitter at trek fm Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm, and the Babel Conference. Type the Babel Conference, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, or go to our website at trekfm and click Discussion on the menu bar. Another way you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, you'll find our current goals and different milestone contribution levels along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Speaking of Patreon, thank you as always to our associate producers for Standard Orbit. They are Norman C. Lau, Nick Anastasio, Tim Robertson, Richard Marquez, Corey Elrod, and Dan Rhodes. You guys, uh, your, your contributions, your help, your support mean the world to us, and we appreciate you being associate producers on Standard Orbit. So to find me on the interwebs... 
You can find me on the Babel Conference. I'm there all the time. Or you can find me on Twitter at BostonSCPO. As for me, you can find me on Twitter at MoronZach. That's M-O-O-R-E-O-N-Z-A-C-H. I'm also the host of my own podcast, Always Holding on the Smallville, where we talk about each and every episode of that Young Superman show. You can find us on Twitter at AlwaysMallville with one S. You can find me on Twitter. I am at Trekkie01D. Celebrating Trek Tuesdays. That's tomorrow, everybody. Wear your Trek. <laughs> yes, and use the hashtag TrekTuesday. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and join us again next time here on Trek FM for another episode of Standard Orbit.